In my lesson during the Bible class hour, I had the opportunity to talk about faithfulness, and I gave several negative examples, but I ran out of time before I could give you a positive example of faithfulness, an exemplary example of a couple that have uh, gone the distance and have shown faithfulness in their life. So if you don't mind, I'm going to back up to our uh, lesson. And I'm going to begin by just, I want to introduce you to it. This is a couple that I want you to know. I want you to meet Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. And the reason I want you to know this sweet, sweet couple, they live in New Bern, North Carolina. Herbert and Zelmyra got married in 1924, back when Calvin Coolidge was president. And last May, they celebrated their 86th wedding Anniversary. In fact, they are listed in the Guinness Book of World's Records as having the longest marriage of a living couple. And I find them just, just a delight because Zelmyra is 101, her sweetheart Herbert is 104. And they may be old, but they are with it when it comes to technology. They are on Twitter. And Herbert and Zelmyra are tweeting marriage advice. And wouldn't you know it, they are called the Tweet Hearts. <laughs> and I just wanted to share with you some of their secrets to marital success. Uh, they say, we were best friends before we married. A friend is for life, and our marriage has lasted a lifetime. They say, respect, support, and communicate with each other, be faithful and true, and love each other with all your heart. That's good advice. I think it explains why they've done so well. Herbert and Zelmyra tell us to remember that marriage is not a contest. Never keep a score. God has put the two of you on the same team to win. And I really like that advice. And they've got a sense of humor, too. When Zelmyra was asked what attracted her to Herbert, her answer was, well, he wasn't much to look at, but he was sweet. Zelmyra said that the most important attribute of a husband, and I'm going to talk about this in a moment, is that he be a, quote, hard worker and good provider. And then she said the 1920s were hard. And if you know American history, yes, they were. But Herbert wanted and provided the best for me. I married a good man. And I like that attitude. By the way, in spite of the fact that Herbert sometimes earned as little as five cents a day, Herbert and Zelmira raised five children and put them all through college. Now, isn't that amazing? And if you were here in my presentation yesterday, I talked about the importance of doing uh, positive acts to, to let your mate know that you care about them. Mel, Mel, Zelmyra's best Valentine's Day memory is this. She says, I cook dinner every day. Herbert left work early one day and surprised me. He cooked dinner for me, and he is a good cook. And Herbert just beamed, and he said, well, I said I was going to cook dinner for her, and she could relax, and the look on her face and her clean plate made my day. 
Doesn't that just give you a sense of the, of the relationship between these two people? They just care about each other. They just love each other. They want to be good to each other. Oh, oh, and I forgot the most important advice of all. Herbert and Zellmeyer say we are both Christians and we believe in God. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord and we pray with and we pray for each other Every day. Now, I think that explains the secret of their success, and that's what I've been talking about in our family rally this weekend. We need to put God first in our lives and first in our marriage, and the family that prays together does what? Stays together. Really is true. The family that prays together stays together. Now, let me get into my sermon here. What would you guess if you were devising a list of the ten hardest things to do in sports? I want you to mentally make a list. What would you put on that list? You know, the Olympics just started this weekend, and we're all thinking about sports, and so I thought it would be appropriate to think about this as well. What would you think are the ten hardest things to do in sports? Well, the good folks at ESPN put their brains together, and they came up with the following list. This is what they say are the ten hardest things to do in sport. Number ten. Skiing the Alpine downhill race at 80 miles an hour. I was on skis one time. I never want to do it again. And I sure didn't go 80 miles an hour. Number nine, saving a penalty kick in soccer. My oldest son was a goalie for several years with Allstate, and I can tell you it's tough. He was a good one. Number eight, bicycling 2,114 miles in the Tour de France. I think I'd get a little saddle sore after that. Number seven, running a marathon. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit worried about this guy. I think he's been in the sun just a little too long. Number six, landing a quadruple toe loop. Don't have a clue what that's about. Number five, returning a tennis serve at 130 to 140 miles an hour. Number four, hitting a golf ball straight and long. Some of you know about that. Number three, pole vaulting. You won't catch me doing that. Number two, driving a race car while enduring five G's in the corners in 120 degree heat, knowing that a mistake can kill you. I can understand why that's high on the list. And what would you guess is the number one hardest thing to do in sports? They say it is hitting a major league baseball thrown at 90 miles an hour. I want you to think about that for just a moment. You are standing at the plate with a crowd of thousands of people yelling and cheering, and the pitcher's up there, and he's about to throw the ball at you, and it's going to come whistling past at 90 miles an hour. Why is pitching hitting a pitch so hard? Well, they calculated it, and they say a batter has to judge the ball in one one one-hundredth of a second. That's how much time he has to get ready to gauge his swing. And if he can make solid contact just three times out of ten, he's successful. If you can hit the ball three times out of ten, you're considered to be a really good hitter in the major leagues. The batter has to balance so many variables because as he stands there at the plate, he has to gauge the speed of the ball, He has to gauge the trajectory of the ball. He has to gauge whether it's going to be up or whether it's going to be down, whether it's going to be a curveball, a slider, a spinner. He's uh, he's got to gauge so many things, and it's just tough to hit 
a baseball because you have to balance so many variables. But this morning, I want to give us guys a greater challenge. I think this is even harder. And that is successfully balancing the demands of fatherhood. I am proud to be the father of two good kids. I'm glad to be a dad, and I'm talking to a lot of men who are here today with your families and your fathers. And this whole lesson is going to be devoted to affirming your importance because the mother may be the heart of the home, but you are the head of the home, and you provide the stability for the home. It is difficult for me this morning to overemphasize just how important you are to your family. And I'm here to really lift up fathers because there's some things we got to balance if we're going to do it right. And the first thing we have to balance, a good father has to balance the demands of work and family. Zell Meyer a minute ago was bragging on Herbert, and one of the things she bragged on is he is a good provider, and that's God's calling for men. We need to be good providers. The Bible says if a man will not work, neither should he eat. It is a shame for a man who can work but doesn't. And I've known a couple of men in my lifetime who who would shirk work. They wouldn't work to save their life. And it's a shame. It's a disgraceful thing if a man can work, but he won't. And let me tell you something. I've heard lots of sermons, and I've even preached a couple of them myself, on how dad don't need to overinvest in work. You don't need to work all the time. Well, that's true. And I'm going to say that in just a minute. But don't underestimate the importance of dad going off to work. Because I'm going to tell you something. I'm familiar with a lot of families where dad's no longer around, either by death or divorce. And it's a hard road to hoe for a mother of children when she doesn't have dad providing the financial stability and the anchor for the home. And I don't underestimate how important it is for old dad to get up in the morning and go to work. I get up in the morning every morning and I go to work. And I want to provide for my family. So that's my priorities. I want to take care of my family. I want to be a good provider. But i got to balance that with my family. And I do need to be careful, and I've got a good wife, and my good wife, one of her functions when our boys were growing up was to pull me back, say, Dan, you're spending too much time at church, you're out visiting too much, and I'll be glad to tell you she helped me achieve a good balance in my life. And I know some of you guys may have a wife who's doing the same thing for you, and if she does, don't resent it. Your wife has a whole lot better gauge on what the family needs when it comes to time. And if your wife says, honey, I really need you to do a little less overtime and a little more family time, pay attention. You need to pay attention. Solomon talks in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, about the fact that we labor, all this labor we do under the sun, all this hard work we do to build up our estate and our inheritance, and we're going to leave it to somebody and who knows how they're going to act. And I'm here to tell you that I have seen a lot of very successful, wealthy, some of them extraordinarily wealthy men who worked hard 60, 70, 80 hours a week to build up a huge pile of cash, but they didn't invest in their children. And I'm going to tell you, I have learned from observation, they can go through, that second generation can go through that pile of cash in a big hurry. I want to invest in my boys, in my family, in my children. 
So if your wife, this is the only thing I'm going to say, is if your wife says you need to pull back a little bit, your boys, your daughters, your children need you to spend a little more time with them, pay attention. She is God's gift to you. The second thing I've got to balance is my role as a husband and a father. And in my presentation yesterday, I said that one of the things we're seeing is there's a real danger point when it comes for divorce along about year 20 in the marriage, year 16 to 20, because that's when the kids are growing up and leaving home. And if I, as a husband, haven't invested in my wife, I'm going to have a real hard time. My children need to know that they come second. Actually, they come third. God first, then my wife, then them. But I need to get my priorities straight, and I need to get my balance healthy, and I need to put my wife before my children. They need to know that. And by the way, kids are smart. They're intuitive. Nobody has to teach them how to do this. Kids instinctively know how to drive a wedge between mom and dad when it comes to discipline. And if mom says one thing, they know how to go to dad, and maybe dad will say something else. And kids can sometimes divide a mother and a father. And if that happens, it is extremely unhealthy for the kid. So what I need to do is make extra sure that I am on the same page with my wife. We need to get our heads together, we need to get our act together, and we need to be a partnership. And I have seen... Parents who allowed children to divide them. And that is a terrible mistake for the parents, but it's even worse for the kids. So I need to balance my roles as a husband and as a father. And then the third thing a good dad has to do, and this is maybe the hardest of all. As a father, I need to balance my authority and my affection. Let me give you God's word to dads. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And I want you to pay very close attention to what God says to fathers. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And notice, first of all, this is directed to fathers. I am called upon to take primary responsibility for the spiritual welfare of my children. God did not entrust that responsibility to the youth minister, although I'm thankful for good youth ministers. He did not entrust that responsibility to the elders, although I'm glad we've got good elders. He did not entrust that responsibility to, the, to my wife. He entrusted it to me, to dad. And so I need to be a spiritual leader in my home. The second thing, though, that I want you to notice is he says, don't exasperate your children. What does it mean to be exasperated? It means to be resentful at unfair or harsh treatment. And we dads sometimes can be a little too harsh. And sometimes... We can be a little too demanding, too domineering. We can be a little bit overbearing, and we need to make sure that we balance something here. Paul says very much the same thing in Colossians 3 and verse 21, where he says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. And I, in my counseling practice, have worked with some embittered children. I have worked with some children who grew up and just had nothing good to say about old dad because their dads were harsh or even abusive toward them. The Bible says that I need to bring them up in the training and instruction 
of the Lord. I want more than anything else for my two sons to go to heaven. John says in 2 John 1, verse 4, it gives me no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He was actually talking about his children in the gospel, but that applies doubly to my physical children. I want to know that my boys are faithful, that they are uh, active in church, and that they are obeying God. And so I want to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And here's a problem we sometimes find, and particularly in in the case of, of the divorce. We sometimes have what's called a play daddy. He doesn't want to take any responsibility for disciplining his kids, for instructing them, for making sure they turn out right. He's just there to play with them. He'll take them out on the weekend to McDonald's. He'll take them to Disney World. He'll play with them, and then he'll dump them off. He won't enforce any rules. He won't make them obey any commands. He just plays with them, and that is a terrible mistake. The Bible says we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Now, I want my boys to love me, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I cannot be a father and always be their buddy. Can't have, can't have it. I can't always be a good father and always be their pal. And I love my boys to death, but I'm here to tell you there were some times when my boys were growing up when they absolutely hated old dad's guts. They just couldn't stand me because I had to discipline them. And I had to be willing to temporarily experience my son's displeasure in order to permanently have their respect, but more importantly, in order to see them turn out healthy, holy, happy young men. We don't want to be a play daddy. I want to be a father. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, verse 18, discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. I remember years ago, I bet it's been about 18 years ago now, I was working with a lady in a counseling situation Uh, She was divorced and remarried, and she had two sons, and she refused to discipline them, refused to allow the stepfather to discipline them. Their biological father wasn't in the picture. But she just told me point blank, I will not discipline my boys. And I said, why not? She said, because I had a father when I was growing up who was mean to me, and I swore that if I ever had children, I'd never discipline them. I want my children to love me. I am not going to discipline them. And I begged that woman, I said, you are making a terrible mistake. She said, nope, my dad was mean to me and I'm going to be good to my boys. I'm going to love my boys. What she didn't understand is that discipline is a part of love. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. And sure enough, both of her boys grew up to be worthless men because she refused And she wouldn't let their stepfather. She refused to discipline them. Now, here's the opposite extreme, and that is a drill sergeant dad. A drill sergeant dad will discipline his boys. He'll lecture them, hector them, make them shape up and do right, but he never expresses any affection to them. His balance is on the other side of the gauge. And I'll tell you what happens with a drill sergeant dad. When he never expresses any affection to his children... Here's a, Josh McDowell has this wonderful wise saying, and that is rules without relationship equals rebellion. It is so important to get the balance right. 
to get the balance right. I need to express my affection to my children and I need to give direction to my children. I need to discipline them and I need to tell them I love them. It's hard to get that balance right, but that's my calling as a father. Dr. David Lewis and Dr. Carly Dodd were a part of the Center for Adolescent Studies at Abilene Christian University and they've just done a tremendous job uh, in researching our kids in the churches of Christ. They did a youth spirituality study that asked the question, what does it take to raise spiritually healthy adolescents? They did a large-scale study. What does it take to raise spiritually healthy adolescents? Would you like to know the number one predictor, the number one most important factor in turning out good kids? Take a wild guess. It is dad's role as a teacher. What they found in their studies is that the father took an active role in teaching his children in bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Didn't we just uh, read that a minute ago? Didn't, didn't God just tell fathers, that's your job? What they found is if the father was active in the spiritual upbringing of his children, those children had tended to turn out well. Oh, and one other thing. They also found that when fathers openly expressed their love to their kids, 84% of those kids had a high level of spiritual maturity. When dad did not express love, that level fell to 39%. Now, look at those numbers very closely because sometimes statistics go right over our head. Let me make it real simple. Dads, if you will teach your children about God and... Let them know you love them. Their chances of being spiritually mature and successful in life double. Double. Now do you see why I say it's so important to strike the right balance? I need to balance my discipline and my authority with my affection. Kids need a double dose from old dad. They need authority, and they need affection, and they need them both at the same time. So here is God's word to fathers. Give them lots of love, affection, emotional engagement, and give them your authority. Give them training and discipline. And if I can strike that balance, I can be a home-run dad. And folks, that's what I want, and that's what I want for your family. It's so important to remember just how important fathers are. In our society, we have an epidemic of fatherlessness. So many children tonight, about 40% of all American children will go to bed tonight in a home in which a father is not present. And there's so many things that those children will lose if they don't have a good father. And sometimes, as in so much of life, We don't recognize what we've got until it's gone. Let me close by reading you a little story by Irma Bombeck. Some of you may remember her. She was a humor writer uh, from a previous generation, and she wrote a little story called Daddy Doll Under the Bed. Irma Bombeck writes, When I was a little kid, a father was like the light in the refrigerator. Every house had one. But no one really knew what either of them did once the door was shut. My dad left the house every morning and always 
seemed glad to see everyone again at night. He opened the jar of pickles when no one else at home could. He was the only one in the house who wasn't afraid to go in the basement by himself. He cut himself shaving, but no one kissed it or got excited about it. It was understood that whenever it rained, he got the car and brought it around to the door. When anyone got sick, he went out to get the prescription filled. He kept busy enough. He set mouse traps. He cut back the roses so the thorns wouldn't snag you when you came to the front door. He oiled my roller skates and they went faster. When I got my bike, he ran alongside me for at least a thousand miles until I got the hang of it. He signed all my report cards. He took a lot of pictures but was never in any of them. He tightened up mother's sagging clothesline every week or so. I was afraid of everyone else's father, but not my own. Once I made him some tea. It was only sugar water, but he sat on a small chair and said it was delicious. He looked very uncomfortable. Once I went fishing with him. I threw rocks into the water, and he threatened to throw me in after them. I wasn't sure he wouldn't, so I looked him in the eye for a whole year. I finally decided he was bluffing and threw in one more. He was a bad poker player. Whenever I played house, the mother doll had a lot to do. I never knew what to do with the daddy doll, so I just had him say, I'm going off to work now, and I threw him under the bed. When I was nine years old, my father didn't get up one morning and go to work. He went to the hospital and died the next day. There were a lot of people in the house who brought all kinds of good food and cakes. We never had so much company before. I went to my room and felt under the bed for the father doll. When I found him, I dusted him off and I put him on my bed. He never did anything. I never knew his leaving would hurt so much. It still does. If you have a good father, you let him know you love him. You let him know you appreciate him. If you're a young person and your father's trying to love you and discipline you, you work with him and you appreciate what he wants for you. If you have a husband who's willing to be a good provider and wants to discipline the kids because he loves them, you let him. We often don't realize just important how something or someone is until it's gone. And this morning I want to say thank God for good fathers. It's hard to be a good dad. You have to balance so many things. You have to balance your demands at work and your demands at home. Your role as a husband and your role as a father. Your authority and your affection. Sometimes it helps me to remember that I've got a good dad and I thank God for my father. Oh, and I've got a good Father in heaven. And my Father in heaven wants me to turn out right. 
And he uses his authority to discipline me when I get out of line. And more than anything else, he shows me he loves me. And the way my Father in heaven showed me that he loved me, he let his only son come to this earth, die on the cross for my sins. God up in heaven is a father. And he gave up his son for you, for me. Aren't you glad we have a Father who loves us that much? Don't you want to serve Him? Don't you want to make Him proud? We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you need to become a Christian, Jesus died on the cross so that you could repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized into His death, His burial, and His resurrection so that you might be a new creation, washed pure and clean. If you've been His child but you've wandered away, you've got a Father in heaven who's waiting for you to come home. We can help you with either of those needs. Let us know right now as we stand and sing.